Hi, everyone, and welcome to the ADSR Inspirations Podcast. My name is James Mallion. I'm your host as I introduce you to inspirational and artful souls from all over the world. I'm deeply interested in music, film, the arts, achieving goals, overcoming struggles, and big ideas. So join me as we uncover some life lessons and knowledge. We're based out of Tokyo, Japan, and we'll be speaking with people from all over the world, ranging from artists, musicians, creatives, leaders, big thinkers, and those who strive to do and be great. Thanks for listening along. Now let's get inspired. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the pod. And we're getting into the latter half of our season two of ADSR Inspirations now. Our guest today, Kyle Broyles, has a passion for film and video. He's done extensive work as a video editor. He's run successful YouTube channels, hosted a podcast, and since last year, together with his wife, runs Pintology, a craft beer bar and arts community in Sasazuka near Shinjuku. In our chat, we get into his interest in old Japanese electronics and gadgets, video editing, and of course, craft beer, and how he uses his bar space to create a community. We also touch on what it takes to make the move to follow your passion, to quit your day job in pursuit of your dreams. Okay, I'll stop talking, but let's jump to my chat with Kyle Broyles on ADSR Inspirations. Originally from small town Indiana, our guest is Kyle Broyles, a Tokyo-based video editor, entrepreneur, content creator, and co-founder of Pintology, a craft beer bar and arts community just outside of Shinjuku. Certainly no stranger to the podcast game. He's also known for his podcast, Tokyo Explosion, which ran from about 2017 to 2020-ish, and his YouTube channel, Hard Officers, which I guess ran from about 2019 to 2022-ish. And in that one, he explores vintage electronics and game systems in Japan by visiting local recycle shops. Uh, on the arts and music side of things, as we gravitate towards here at ADSR, uh, I think it's really interesting how Kyle is using his bar as a venue for hosting and supporting events, shows, and the local community. With all that said, I want to welcome to the show Kyle Broyles. Hello, hello. Wow, what an intro. That's amazing. Somebody actually <laughs> looked up all the dumb little things that I have done in the past and put them all in one place. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, it's all good, man. Well, you know, when you add them all up, uh, they don't actually sound so dumb. Yeah, it almost sounded like I knew what I was doing there for a second. <laughs> well, uh, can you tell us, I guess, how things sort of progressed from like I said, small town Indiana to Tokyo. I know you went to Ball State University where you were studying technology, media, communications. Did you always have like an interest in Japan and Japanese things growing up? Yeah. So I remember when I was even younger in middle school, um, a town I lived in at the time called Bluffton 
they they offered, I think, three languages, French, Spanish, and Japanese. And I remember that was kind of my first exposure to Japan was, you know, I, a lot of people would pick Spanish. I feel like that's the most common language for people in the U.S. to to learn in school just because it's, you know, we're close to Mexico and there's a lot of Spanish speakers in the U.S. But I was like, I don't know, Japanese sounds interesting. And I was really looking forward to taking the classes. But then we moved <laughs> to a, a smaller private school, which only offered Spanish. So I was like, oh, I guess, guess my dreams of learning Japanese are over. So then I went, when I went to school at Ball State, um, as part of the telecommunications program, you have to take a language course. And I was like, all right, let's give Japanese another shot. And I'm, I'm glad I did because uh, a lot of my friends from that class actually are, are in Japan now still. I think from that class, upwards of 10 people actually ended up living in Japan after they graduated. Mm -hmm. So it, it was cool. I, I kind of joined a community back then, just, you know, earning my mandatory language credit and got kind of more pulled into being interested in Japan beyond just the language credit side because of the cool people that I met in that class. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and then I met my wife. She was actually a, so I did grad school at Ball State as well. And my wife was a graduate assistant for the Japanese department. And I just kind of met her through that whole community of people who had been involved with the Japanese department. And yeah, we uh, both lived in Indiana for three years, got married, and then she got a job here in Japan. So it was a toss up between LA or Tokyo. <laughs> And like, you know, I, I studied media and things, so there would have been a lot of opportunities in Los Angeles, but I hate driving. So that was kind of like one of the things where, oh, Tokyo, I don't even have to have a car, like public transportation is so good. And let's see what kind of little niche I can carve out for myself <laughs> here in Japan. Sure. Yeah, right on. Um, so in terms of a timeline, um, what... Uh what what years are we talking about? This is like around 2016 or so? Yeah, so uh, when I started Japanese class, that would have been like 2009 or 10. And then by the time I finished grad school, it would have been... I finished grad school in 2014, but uh, she still had, I, I forget, if it, I think two more years in her program. She's a little bit younger than me. So I worked at a, at a bank in Muncie, Indiana, in the uh, technology department, or the what the I don't even remember what they called it. Basically, the communications infrastructure, like um, networking and installing PCs and stuff. So I did that for two years, which wasn't a bad little gig that kept me close to uh, my wife. Because obviously, I could have moved to like Chicago, or there were some opportunities in like Austin, Texas. It was really popping off at that time. But I decided to to stay home for my wife. <laughs> and right. then we, we moved to Tokyo together. So when you first came over then, um, you said like she had a job lined up. And then um, what were you kind of thinking for work at this time? Did you have anything uh, like set or were you thinking to do like freelance stuff? Um, so I guess... Um, going through that program, like your focus was 
more on like video work, video editing, producing? What what was like mm. your your kind of passion around that time? Yeah, so I could do uh, because of my graduate program was more about basically what it trains you to do is to work for like a consulting firm like Accenture in the um, IT communication space. Uh, so for example, like building out the telecommunications plan for, a, let's say, a, what's a current franchise? I'm only thinking of places that don't exist anymore. <laughs> like, let's just say Best Buy. They need mm-hmm. they need um, an internet solution for all their stores that like keeps them connected and that a certain amount of bandwidth and whatever and um, setting up the shop with the wireless communication access points and stuff. So a lot of what my program was designed to do is you would go in kind of between the technology and business side and um, work with engineers and salespeople to basically design a solution for a client like that. That That's pretty much the field most people went into. But my undergrad was more media production. So, you know, audio and video production. Um, and that's really the kind of thing that I wanted to get back into doing because I did the other thing at that bank and I was bored out of my mind, to be honest. But um, so I came here fully. I had a pretty wide range of things I could do. I could do if I could find like an English language, either help desk or IT position, I could do that. I could teach English, of course, um, which I fully expected to do first moving here, at least until I found something because it's you know, one of the most common routes for foreigners finding work in, in Japan. But I was really lucky. So I listened to Japanese Pod 101 podcast at the time, uh, which is one of the oldest kind of Japanese language learning podcasts. And yeah, yeah. I was like, I wonder what these guys are up to. Like, they're making podcasts. Uh, maybe I can put some of my production skills to use. And I was lucky to, you know, I think it was less than a month I got a job. After we moved, I got a job there at Japanese Pod 101 and started working on the video team. And then until earlier this year, I was the manager of that team for, what I guess, three three or so years. Um, and yeah, really nice place to work. Met a lot of amazing people. It's just after seven years kind of producing the same kind of stuff. I was ready to kind of move out on my own and, and start this beer adventure <laughs> with my wife. For sure. Right on. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah so it sounds like um, you kind of, like you said, maybe got a bit lucky, your right place, right time, and things kind of worked out. Yeah. You could kind of get into your field almost right away. Um, yeah. What were your, yeah, I, I, I also remember that pod and I remember listening to that pod. So that's kind of cool. Um, what, what would you say, like, um, did you have like any certifications for Japanese at that time? Um, would you say like that was an important skill for you to have when you first came over or um, has that kind of grown over the years? Yeah, I've never taken any of the formal proficiency tests, any of the JLPTs or anything. Um, I studied it in college for two years, which does om- almost nothing in terms of having practical Japanese on, uh, in the real world, at least the version 
of Jeff. We used a book called Nakama, which I think is almost nobody uses. It was developed by a, a professor at Purdue University in Indiana. So I feel like that's probably why we were using it. Most people use Genki or something, but um, Nakama, it teaches you all the very formal, like if you say it to somebody around your same age in Japan on the street, they look at you like, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I, don't, I don't even remember, just like the most formal ways of saying everything. Yeah, yeah. So moving to Japan was an eye opener. It's like, I don't know how to communicate without sounding like an idiot at all. So it, really, I was starting from zero when I moved here, as far as just kind of natural conversation goes. But fortunately, at, at my, so Japanese Pod 101, that company, Innovative Language, actually teaches 34 languages. And not everybody clearly can speak every language that we teach. And especially on the production side, my my job was mostly to um, to work with native speakers who are teaching the language and then, you know, producing what my focus was video, but they, we do, they did audio as well, mm-hmm. producing whatever the piece of content or the package was, whether it's like a live stream or what have you, um, and just being more on kind of the production side of things. So the common language there is English. So I didn't really have to be, you know, business level in Japanese or any other language. And honestly, my my Japanese ability probably suffered because of that, because I spent seven years, you know, Tokyo, you can get by socially, you can meet other English speaking friends, um, ordering at restaurants and things, you don't really have to know that much. You can learn that pretty quick. And then if you work in a place where you don't have to use the language, it's pretty easy to find yourself just kind of coasting only using English. So the bar has been good for that. Cause I, I, I don't want to live in a foreign country and just like find my own little English bubble <laughs> to exist mm-hmm. in. I'd, I'd prefer to be able to branch out and, and communicate in the actual language and meet, you know, locals and people from Japan. So the bar has been, uh, amazing for that. <laughs> Almost like, you know, too much of a change at once, but We've been we've been at it for about a year. Next year will be our one year or next month will be our one year anniversary. And I think my Japanese has improved. It's definitely still messy. <laughs> it's like bar Japanese. Mm-hmm. But uh it's it's been the impetus for me to actually speak it more than just, you know, ordering uh food. <laughs> so yeah, it's been good. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I kind of had a little bit of a similar experience. Like I mentioned earlier, I spent some time also working at a craft beer spot and, um, it's kind of yeah. just like when you're, uh, when you're thrust into it and you don't have any other option. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, especially like if you're the only one working and, um, you know, it's quiet. Yep you know, and customers want to talk or whatever. So, (laughs) yes, uh, I feel, yes, I feel that in my bones. Which bar did you work at or craft beer place? um, Antenna America in Yokohama. Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah. They're the big, the big guys. (laughs) They import a lot of the big American names, right? Yeah. Right. Nagano trading. Yeah. I kind of, uh, 
Yeah, I, I know a lot of the people, I guess, the importers, and um, I was definitely more into it before, but, you know, I still love craft brews, and uh, so, yeah, that was a cool experience, but uh, it's definitely hard work, and it's hard to yeah. make a living if you're not kind of doing your own thing, I kind of feel like, mm. so, uh, but it was it was a good experience, definitely uh, got my when fill. When was that? That was... Um, I want to say, let's see, maybe around 2016, 2017. Hmm. Yeah. Around that yeah, time. Yeah, I forget. Yeah. We could have crossed paths because if I, if, if I couldn't find an English teaching position I liked, and if I didn't find the production-related job, craft beer was also one of the industries I was going to look into. And back then in 2016, there wasn't a whole lot in Japan, you know, like, yeah. I was looking at Baird, of course. Uh, Nagano Trading was around. The watering hole was open. So I was. my plan was, if I couldn't find anything else, to try to find some brewery nearby and just be like, hey, let me like wash out your kegs. <laughs> let me yeah. just start at the bottom rung and start hopefully climbing my way up. But yeah, yeah it was uh, slim pickings back in 2016 in the craft beer industry, and it's really exploded in the past few years, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll have to get into that a little bit later. I just kind of want to continue this thread for a little bit. So like you were, yeah. you were doing this stuff, um, with, uh, innovative language and then, um, were you kind of doing like, did you, did you have some, um, I guess, some feeling or something like, oh, I want to kind of do some side projects or like wh when did the, like, yeah, you had your own, you had your own podcast going, uh, I guess around like 2017, it started up, right? That was the yeah. uh, Tokyo Explosion podcast. So like you had just kind of started working with uh, the innovative language and then like, what was sort of the impetus to uh, start your own pod? Yeah, I, I always feel the urge to be doing my own, making my own things, you know, and working for a company, of course, you're always, you're constantly compromising. There are certain, there's so many ways to approach any like project if you're producing a video, for example, and, but there's, there's kind of like the high production high quality, high amount of time and energy and budget <laughs> approach to things. Most of the time in the real world, at least when you're making internet content, what always wins out is what's the fastest, easiest, lowest effort <laughs> <laughs> thing yeah. to kind of push out. So you, you kind of find yourself, you're not really exercising your uh, creative muscles to their maximum, you're more just kind of like grinding out fast, easy bits of, of content, which is not to say anything bad about those companies. That's just the way, the the nature of the beast, I suppose. So for me to just kind of uh, feel more kind of creatively satisfied, I was always doing little things on the side, mostly just for my own sanity and uh, enjoyment. So. Like Tokyo Explosion never really had much of a strong uh, like value statement to the listener. It was just like me and my friend just want to goof off and have an excuse to like 
keep in touch once a week pretty much is why it started because he was a um, an English teacher for I forget the company's name or if I'm even able to say what it is but they would send him all over the country basically he would fill in Mm -hmm. open spots as they were hiring new people or he'd train new teachers and stuff so he was always hopping all over the place and I just wanted to make sure that we kept in regular contact. So really Tokyo Explosion was just us recording our dumb <laughs> antics together. Um, but I think it's still available on Spotify. It was kind of touch or go there, touch and go there for a bit. Um, Cause mm-hmm. I forgot to pay the hosting fee <laughs> and I was like, Oh crap. Like it might just totally be gone now. I mean, I have it backed up on Google drive, but yeah, but I think Spotify still has it. If anybody wants to go back and listen to those episodes, there's some pretty mm-hmm. good ones buried in there. Um, but yeah, I did, I always have some kind of dumb little project on the side, no matter, like even still, um, but Tokyo Explosion just kind of fizzled out because it was around the pandemic. I think we didn't like recording remotely as much if we could at all manage it. We'd try to record together. Um, a lot of my, cause you know, various other co-hosts came and went and two of them, both had kids so they both now have two young children and that complicates things more and then um within the last year i opened the bar so it's just our as we've kind of grown and developed and gone in different parts of our lives it's been harder to keep up with that we we've been saying we want to do one last show just to like one last episode just to kind of put a bow on things sure and that might happen i don't know if that'll be in this when it will happen, but the, probably one more will go out at some point. Cause some people, nice. you know, we didn't have a big following, but there were some people who were like, Hey man, like <laughs> it just kind of ended. Like, are you ever going to do anything else? And might just, you know, get the band back together for one last <laughs> show. <laughs> yeah. Nice, 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 nice. Okay. So definitely look out for that one. The, the final. Yeah. And hard officers is a very similar thing. Whereas me and another buddy, Basically, we were just, I feel like the whole um, retro games thing is starting to kind of go away and not just go away, just the the market's getting kind of crazy and prices are really skyrocketing. But uh, he and I kind of could see how quickly things were changing. And a lot of these places probably won't be around forever. Like you see media shops closing. Yeah physical media is not really much of a thing. Like most people don't have any interest or reason unless they're really into it as a hobby, as a collector. Mm. But Japan at the time, and even still has a lot of shops that you can find just some insane things where if you grew up in any other country than Japan, pretty much you would only see a lot of these things like in magazines or see pictures of them online but you can go to a hard off in the middle of nowhere and, and see some cool, obscure (laughs) pieces of gaming history, just kind of there for you to purchase. And back then, mostly at by today's standards, pretty reasonable prices. You know, you can find games complete in box, like old Famicom or super Famicom games in box for like a few hundred yen, basically, which is just completely unheard of in the States at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just wanted to see, to basically visit as many hard offs as we possibly could just to see what they were all like. And hard off has its own 
kind of magical vibe, you know, <laughs> like it, people who are into music, who are, who buy gear or like old pedals, I think can appreciate it as well. It's not just video games, but each heart off is a bit different and it's just a bunch of nerdy people like me, like digging through boxes, looking for, you can find obscure photography equipment or, and whatever. And it's just, fun to go and kind of roll the dice on what you can find at any given place. Um, so yeah, and they actually are totally cool with people filming because I bought these little, uh, like spy camera glasses to, <laughs> to record in certain shops. Cause I just didn't want to be obnoxious. I didn't want to be like shoving a camera in people's face. Yeah. But the quality was really bad in those first couple episodes and hard off ha- some of them have signs that actually say like, it's okay. You can film. <laughs> it's mm. totally fine. Right. So then we just, I moved to just kind of filming it with my phone and then we would add sort of voiceover after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was, it was fun for a while. It's just, we ended up acquiring a bunch of junk <laughs> and space yeah. is limited in Tokyo. And we were both just like, yeah, we don't really need any more junk. So we just kind of naturally stopped going out and, both decided like the project wasn't uh we didn't have enough passion for the project to just go out and film hard offs without us having any actual connection or interest in getting anything sure yeah so yeah that's hard officers (laughs) yeah yeah no that that makes a lot of sense yeah i think that was a cool project did you kind of like uh when you were growing up were you kind of like into that stuff as well um into the games and into some of the gear and stuff yeah, I mean, I still love, I love anything old with a screen on it, pretty much. I think that's, I mean, growing up, yes, I loved video games and, and TV and movies, everything centered around like our family <laughs> television, you know. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I like rode my bike a lot and skateboarded and rollerbladed and whatnot. But I don't know, I have a lot of fond memories around the the TV (laughs) for sure, usually involving video games or, you know, movies. So, and the kind of the whole ritual of physical media, I still find a, a lot of charm in the, the devices, like the players themselves And Japan has so many obscure pieces of media that maybe never took off in other parts of the world, like mini disc or laser disc or, yeah. Uh, you know, beta was a little bit bigger here. So you can find all these things just out and hard off, you know, in the junk section um, that are just sort of like what ephemera out on the margins of kind of what was once just the way everybody did things. And it's cool that those still exist and that there are people who care enough to go out and um, clean them up and preserve them. Um, you know, audio cassette tapes are having a big resurgence over the past several years. Um, and that's actually, well, I guess we'll get there eventually, but that's that kind of interest in sort of the semi-obscure forms of media is what started one of the music events at our, at our bar. That's really helped us build a, a community of, fellow weirdos (laughs) and that all kind of came out of that same interest right on nice yeah um i think like you said 
definitely Japan, maybe one of the few places that uh, like shops like that can survive, right? And ha- and have survived. Like you know, it's cool to see that stuff. Um, you know, they're run as businesses. They're not like museums, right? Like if you yeah, had, like physical media in the states or Canada, like just doesn't really exist anymore so like even Mm -hmm. in terms of like you know record shops cd shops you still you know those are still pretty prevalent and you know these these places with you know 20 30 year old game systems i mean you know hard offs are still going you know like you said some of them are kind of (laughs) shutting down but uh it's still a business and you know they're still obviously making some money right yeah, and I, I think it's it's it is kind of a shame. I, I think niche places will will always remain. I think probably like movie theaters are kind of going in that direction too, where they're going to have to become more niche. Or in the U.S., you see them becoming more like uh, you know, you press a button and they'll bring you like buffalo wings and craft beer yeah. or what have you. But which I, you know, that's kind of fun. But. Um, it it would be a shame to lose these physical places where people can get together and connect over their their interests and their passions and that's what you know record stores music stores bookstores you know physical media is is such a good kind of venue to to meet other like-minded people and to make connections with people and to see that all just be relegated to a streaming service where it's curated by somebody else and it's completely impersonal and you don't uh, rub elbows with anybody else along the way. I think we're going to, it'd be really sad to see, but fortunately I don't think that will ever completely be the case. The people who have the passion, there will always be a niche out there. I like, I can plug another great shop um, video market in Nishi Shinjuku. That's, a great example of a place like if you want that 90s video rental shop vibe like it's still going strong out there in Nishi Shinjuku um I don't think he does rentals but you can buy just like very excellently curated collection of uh Blu-rays, DVDs and VHS tapes um mostly in like horror and like Italian giallo and nice. uh kind of cult films but super cool shop run by a really knowledgeable guy. I think that's kind of the way of the future for physical media, whether it's uh, game stores. There's one called Beep in Akihabara. And they have amazing like old retro Japanese gaming PCs and things, like the PC-88s and 98s and the Sharp X68000, which is just such, such cool hardware that coming from outside Japan, again, you would, I only ever kind of like dreamt of seeing these (laughs) devices in real life, but they have them up and running in the shop and they service them and sell games for them. And they sell arcade PCB boards and shops like that are really, uh, I think they'll be around forever as long as there's a community with the passion for it. Mm. The big kind of corporate hard offs and things, um, you never know, like, uh, there's another, it's not hard off, but Dorama is a name of shops, mostly around Setagaya. And like, um, they have one in Sazazuka where a bar is, 
but they used to have a bunch of basically book off esque media shops and they're all turning into either trading card shops or uh, uh food like uh used clothing stores because i'm sure they just uh have to pivot to survive you know and if if the shop isn't run by somebody who's really passionate and if they haven't built up a community around these like obscure niche hobbies, then it's totally understandable that they're just going to move to whatever will sustain them. (laughs) And the, the places like the video market beep and Akihabara um, will kind of keep the more niche passions alive. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one of the yeah reoccurring things I hear you saying, you know, is like you have to have the passion for it. And then these communities of like-minded people are kind of what yeah. keep, keeps everything going. Um, so kind of getting back to like your journey. So, you know, you were working at the Innovative Language and then you always kind of had these little side projects um, on the go. Like, did you always kind of, feel like it was good to kind of have this um, full-time job or this full-time contract? Or did you sometimes feel like, you know, maybe I should just go the freelance thing and try and get, um, you know, like jobs that would kind of like, you know, take a couple months and would be like more interesting for me in a certain sense? Um, Like, did you feel like you needed to have that? full-time job or like what was what was your kind of uh attitude throughout that yeah i mean it it i never really landed on a good answer there because so the longer i worked at innovative language you know my position got better my salary got better you know it was very stable i always pretty much always had weekends off um my days were rarely longer than, you know, eight hours of work. So I really couldn't complain about the, about that, but it it does leave you with less energy for your own projects. Um, you, you really had to, I felt like I had to really pull it, scrape it out of what, what little energy I had left at the end of the day or the week. Yeah. Um, but I mean, freelance work can be tough if you don't already have a big, network of cl- potential clients mm-hmm. and i've starting off freelance work uh would mostly be you know a full-time job just of sales and marketing of getting yourself out there and trying to find clients and for me i always you know when looking at the type of work i could do in that way of just kind of what connections i had a lot of it would probably end up being you know corporate clients or like shooting little kind of web-based commercials for businesses and things. And, you know, that's also a lot of work, not only finding those clients and making those videos, but by the end of it, uh, probably I'd extend more effort and I don't know if I would feel any more creatively satisfied. (laughs) So that, that was always kind of the rationale in my mind. And then the projects I did on the side, that's why they are just completely kind of nonsensical like if if i were approaching it as a business person none of my side projects would make any sense because there's just no there's no way that any of them would have taken off as a money-making scheme but it was just an outlet for my own 
you know, passion and interest. Uh, I think if I didn't have such a stable, cushy position, it definitely would have pushed me out into, you know, different circles of people. My Japanese probably would have improved a lot faster, I, I would guess, just out of necessity. And I don't know who, who's, who can really say after those seven years what maybe I could have accomplished if I had just kind of grinded the, uh, the freelance hustle, <laughs> you know, and, and what kind of connections I could have made. But, yeah, I, I often wonder, you know, would I be more in the kind of film and video production side of things? Would I be a more accomplished, like, I don't know, director of photography or something? If I had gone that route, it's it's possible, but it would have come with a lot of effort and pain and struggles. Right. And I, I still don't know if it would have led me to doing the kind of projects that I still dream about doing. Sure. And there's still some time. I'm in my mid-30s, you know. <laughs> Game's not over yet, so <laughs> hopefully I can... My dream now is to, I have a little bit more flexibility. We have our own thing going. And the dream has always been for me to start making some short films and entering some uh, film festivals and things. Right now, I'm just kind of building up the uh, resources and energy and ideas to just start uh, making things nice. again, like kind of on a higher level. And we have a bar, which, you know, it's a good location, production quality. Like, I can just make a bunch of short films that center around people in a bar. <laughs> nice. You know, I've got everything I need. <laughs> For sure. Right on, right on. Yeah, that's cool to hear then. Yeah, I guess, you know, it, the question is like, you know, it's always looking back in hindsight and saying, oh, what if I did this? What, what if I did this? What, uh, what if I did that? Sometimes like it doesn't really make any sense to kind of look at things that way. You've kind of arrived, arrived at this point in your life and, you know, you've learned lessons and all you can really focus on is sort of moving forward. Like you said, you still have yeah. a lot of time ahead of you to pursue different things. Um, I know uh, you were also doing, like you mentioned, short films and um, potentially getting into some film festivals, things like that. Um, I know you were doing a little bit of work uh, with uh, Japan Kyo doing uh, yeah. short, short documentaries. Um, what kind of, uh, what was the motivation for that project? I know you were working with um, Tony Vega a little bit on that one. Yeah. And is that something more in line with uh, what you were thinking about? Or was that, uh, how, did, how did that come around? Yeah. I just, I've always wanted to, I've enjoyed making documentaries, you know, since undergrad, you know, it's an easy project. Not easy. I mean, they, they take a lot of time and effort, but it's, uh, if you see somebody interesting, it's nice to be able to just say, Hey, let's, let's tell your story with a short documentary. And it's relatively like I can do it alone, pretty much production wise I can go with my gear and shoot a little package and edit it together. And, and Tony Vega, he's a really great guy. He's been doing a blog on japankyo.com for probably close to a decade now. And he does two podcasts there and all kinds of things. So it was great to collaborate with him because 
he already knows a lot of people or knows of a lot of interesting stories. So I was like, um, if you could help me find subjects and kind of coordinate the uh, session of recording and interviewing and stuff, and maybe helping actually do the interview, because Tony's Japanese is way better than mine. Um, it, it was a great collaboration. I mean, he lives in Hawaii, so a lot of the interviews we would end up doing remotely where Tony's just kind of on a voice call and then I'm filming the interviewee here around Japan. And it was just always, you know, it, another option of me to get out there and make stuff and kind of flex my creative muscles a little bit. Um, and I still have two that I haven't edited that have been just in the can for like, or I guess shot for more than a year now. Um, Cause then we started opening the bar and they just kind of got put on the back burner, but there, there's some cool little shorts there. You can look up on YouTube, J Japan Kyo docs, I think is the name of the channel. Um, mm -hmm. My favorite one. It's funny, like in making these things, you can overproduce things or over edit things and then find like my favorite edit in the end is, is one about a, a bar owner who used to be Hikikomori, like she was a shut-in basically. And her journey of kind of pulling herself out of that and mustering the energy to open a, a lesbian bar in Ikebukuro and making it a safe space for, um, you know, lesbian women to just kind of hang out and not have to ha deal with the hassle of like being hit on by weird, creepy dudes and stuff. So yeah, her story is really cool and she's a super fascinating and, you know, charismatic character. It's hard to believe she was a shut in for so long. And I think that, you know, she's just one of, there's a lot of people probably who feel the same way. She was stuck in a corporate job in Tokyo, I think working long hours and not feeling like she was able to express who she really was. And we, when you ignore that for long enough, I think it's, it just becomes too much to kind of bear and people just sort of lose hope and give up. And it was nice to see her find, find an outlet, you know, very similar to what, what I found through our, our community at Pintology. Um, so I'd recommend that one. I, th I forget the name of the video, but there's only a handful of them on Japan Kyo docs. You can mm -hmm. go check those out. Um, hers is probably the, the most interesting interview just because her story is so fascinating and inspiring. Right. But yeah, that, that edit, like it's, I didn't really do anything fancy because her story is interesting enough. I didn't have to add a bunch of like, like uh, showy edits <laughs> or fancy montages. I just kind of let her tell her story, which was great. Yeah, right. Definitely. Um, yeah, definitely for people listening in, go check those out. I've checked out some of them. They're all, they're all pretty cool. And, um, like you said, if, uh, you know, if you've got some ideas for some future things like that, I think, uh, there could be some more, uh, some more cool things in store, but, uh, yeah, yeah, we've kind of, kind of danced around, around the topic a little bit. We got to jump to your current, uh, your current project. Yeah. Uh, I suppose is uh, taking up a lot of your time these days. Um, so 
I did. I did listen to. Uh, I listened to a bit of the story when you were on uh, Tony's podcast. I guess that was like six months ago or so, or maybe longer. Yeah. Um. Yeah. When you were talking about kind of uh, the process of starting it up, and uh, I think it was it was majority your wife's idea and then or she was the one to kind of make it happen and you were mm-hmm. fully on board with it yeah i guess so that was just about a year ago correct yeah we opened so last year mid june i i was in the us for most of june but we were already in kind of building mode so at this time last year the contractor was building the actual bar and um building out the space and my wife yuki left her job i think at the end of april to focus on making a bar full-time we had talked about it ever since we moved to japan Uh, we lived in shimokirazawa when we moved here and now there's a lot of great craft beer options there but when we first moved there weren't really there were a couple but the we always felt like that would be a good place to to build a space and then uh, several people kind of beat us to it and we were like well i think the craft beer market's kind of um, saturated in this particular neighborhood yeah so sasauska is like a 15 minute walk from shimokirazawa station so it's still kind of the same area but it's uh kind of in a little pocket between other trendy neighborhoods like hatagaya shimokirazawa um nakano koenji who already have some pretty established craft beer joints and Sasazuka just seemed like a pretty obvious little pocket in the middle of all those mm-hmm. that didn't have a kind of local craft beer place for the people, you know, within a five to 10 minute walk of our space. So we ended up landing on that as a location. And yeah, she, she was for most of last year full time. And I kept working until the beginning of this year, my day job. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just easier. She's Japanese. So and navigating all of the like paperwork and yeah. loan applications and dealing with banks and landlords and stuff, it's way, it's just, she gives a way better first impression to a Japanese person because she, she's a native speaker and she's worked in sales for, you know, tech companies and stuff. So she was able to put together a business plan that looked really convincing and impressive i guess because it worked (laughs) so yeah yeah. um and then just to keep a bit of stability because we had no idea how those the first year or so would be i kept working Mm -hmm. at my previous job and then fortunately you know early this year we were like well i think we're at a place where we can just kind of both go all in on this and we're still working to kind of grow the community especially because i think a bar that's ultimately what it is it's a space to to build a community and if you don't have that piece um i think that's when you're in trouble as a bar um you're just peddling alcohol at that point you know and if it's not a community where people can come together and expect to meet somebody else interesting or like see a familiar face or people remember them that's really the product as much as the beer and the whiskey i think um and kind of the whole lifeblood of the operation the beer is just sort of the economic vehicle right and it it takes a lot to to build that as i'm sure you are aware of working at antenna america you know uh 
it can be really trying on your uh, social energy. Like I'm not the most, I'm, I don't know. I think I'm mostly introverted because I, I definitely get worn out <laughs> just being social at the bar all the time. Yeah. But it is so it's, it's really fulfilling to see the community actually form that started out as just a dream mm. and it's actually happening. Um, and we're still still kicking after a year. <laughs> Hopefully, at least awesome. several more. <laughs> yeah. Great, great. Yeah. So first off, yeah, I got to say, congrats on uh, congrats on the year because uh, you know, like you mentioned, these days it does like for myself having kind of been into craft beer in Japan, you know, for ten years more, um, you know these days it does seem a bit saturated and you kind of wonder which places will survive. You know, that always seems mm. like a new place is kind of starting up. So, uh, yeah, I gotta say congrats on the one year and, uh, you know, like you kind of mentioned this was always kind of something like in the back of your minds, um, you and your wife, did you like, did you think like back in Indiana and stuff, did you think, oh, you know, one day like I'll open a bar or like were you, I know <laughs> Indiana is pretty good for craft beer. There's a few uh, famous craft breweries out there. Um, yeah. And I think you mentioned whiskey and bourbon at your place as well. Yeah. Which is, which is also pretty, uh, pretty prevalent around the Indiana area. So like, were you, were you always kind of into the craft beer thing? Yeah, my wife and I really bonded over craft beer. I mean, at in that small Indiana college town, Muncie, craft beer was one of the funnest things to go out and do, you know, uh, on the weekend. So uh, Savage's Ale House and Fickle Peach, shout out to those places in Muncie. They're really kind of part of what, in my mind, you know, I'd, I wanted to model our community after. Um, Yuki and I, you know, we we went to those places you know, pretty much every weekend and really enjoyed craft beer. Um, I remember my first exposure to craft beer was, I was probably like a freshman in college um, at a house party. And usually people at those parties will drink like a Keystone light or, you know, Bush light yeah. or this really crappy, basically water beer to, you know, play beer pong with or, yeah. what have you. And somehow somebody got a six pack of Bell's two hearted ale, which is a, you know, nice pale ale. It's a little bit old school at this point, but, um, somebody opened a bottle of it and they were passing it around. I remember everybody like wincing like, Oh, what is this? Cause you know, it's <laughs> like hoppy and really fragrant and floral. And they were all like disgusted by it. And then I took a drink from it. It was like that scene in Ratatouille where Remy, you know, his brain, there's like lightning going off when he's mixing cheese and wine or whatever. It was kind of like that. I was like, whoa, like beer can be like this too. And that's pretty much what started my journey. Like never looked back at a Keystone light <laughs> or <laughs> what have you again. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's great that the the boom is, you know, probably 10 years behind the, the real boom in the US and Japan. But yeah, probably not everybody in the scene will will make it through the other end of this, but I think the process will we can already see a lot of really interesting breweries are 
are already thriving. Inkhorn in Tokyo is great. Of course, West Coast Brewing. I think you had Derek on this podcast, right? Yeah. Um, Open Air in Kobe and Namcraft. Like, there's so many really good breweries who I think will stand the test of time and and be, uh, you know, held up on the global craft beer scene alongside places like Trillium and The Vale and Three Floyds and whatnot. Um, I think some some really good places are uh, taken off here. And it, Tokyo has what, like the greater metrop- metropolitan area is like 34 million people. So when you think of it that way, like I think it, since craft beer is still developing, it can support, I think pretty much every major station can have one craft beer bar. That's kind of how I think mm-hmm. about it. Um, because, you know, most of these stations, somewhere, sometimes upwards of a million people live within, you know, a 15 minute walk <laughs> of your space, which is, you know, like a reasonably sized city in the US, which yeah. might, you know, on its own support several breweries and, you know, dozens of craft beer bars. So I, I think there is still room to grow, even though it, the boom in the past couple of years has been kind of crazy to watch how many places are popping up. But I think there's there's space as long as we all, you know, come together as a community and work on, you know, getting word out there and, and growing kind of the, the passion for craft beer. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I think something that you mentioned before, too, and in terms of Pintology, you said, you know, like your venue or the craft beer thing is just being kind of used as the vehicle for the community or like the community, the art, the community Mm. is the main thing that is, you know, keeping you guys in business, the main thing that's holding everyone together, bringing everyone together, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be beer, but, uh, you know, in this case, like craft beer is certainly, um, better than non-craft beer or, um, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah. Yeah. It's a good cultural fit. I think, you know, if it's just a coffee shop, not to say just a coffee shop, but if it's a coffee shop that brings a certain connotation, you know, like, that's a place people go to kind of chill. They might be working on a project on their laptop. They might, it's, you don't go to a coffee shop with the same expectation of just like bumping into a stranger and, and somehow ending up in a conversation for hours, you know? Um, so but the bar kind of vibe fits that type of community that we want to build the best. And of course, if you're going to, for us, if you're going to pick, a focus like craft beer and whiskey. There's no question. That's, that's where our passion is. Um, neither of us are really experienced mixologists. So cocktails are less of our thing. We just kind of want to pick the beer and whiskey. That's quality enough that, you know, it's almost a waste to mix them with anything <laughs> anyway. So that's, yeah, that's kind of our, our focus there. Um, and yeah, you want it to be a space where people feel comfortable coming back and, um, ex- you know, kind of feeling welcome and at home when they come. Um, and being able to do events like, 
you know, we talked about all these dumb little projects I've done on the side throughout the years. And I've recently started to think uh, whether my projects go anywhere or not, maybe my next kind of mission is to build this space or a community of creative people where we can get together and either make things together or lift up each other's work or, you know, inspire each other. And that's where, you know, events like the monthly event we do called Bad Head, which originally was supposed to be centered around uh, cassette tapes. So people would incorporate cassette tapes into their live sets, which could mean any number of things. Like we had a, a guitar player named Rob Noyes, and he just made a, a drone tape, basically, that he then played improvisation improvisational 12 string guitar over so like that's incorporating a tape or um, a lot of people will just make a mixtape and then run it through effectors to kind of just break it you know and just kind of turn it into kind of a noisy broken type of a set and that you know that counts um now kind of our focus for that event because um it started with just like uh, me and two other people we had these little cheap Chinese tape players that we got at a, another shop, Psilocybin, which I have to shout out while I'm on this podcast in Sasazica, because they're such a, a critical part of us working as a community. Um, it's run by two designers who curate this cool shop of obscure books, um, clothing, designer, design-related things. Um, but they, so they sell this little Chinese tape player that several of us bought and just started kind of like hacking and taking apart and breaking in certain ways. And one day, three of us were just talking about, you know, the possibilities of this little device. And then that turned into originally the plan was, you know, other people who are interested in basically hacking tape devices, having a little like workshop or meetup at the bar which then turned into, well, people should just do live sets. And then it became more of just like a music event. And as that has continued to grow, um, we still encourage the use of tape in um, live performance. But really the main focus is no modern laptops, tablets, smartphones um, as part of the performance going more to, toward a standalone devices or as analog as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of complicated, like what constitutes analog. <laughs> so yeah. it, we're not really strict on that. It's just as long as you don't have a, for this event, no like DAW or modern laptop or tablet and just kind of working things out um, in a kind of dollless <laughs> situation. Right. But yeah, we've, that's, we've met all kinds of people who just kind of came out of the woodwork and took interest in that type of event. And I think that's kind of my mission right now is building more events like that, that kind of encourage and uh, give people the motivation to kind of, if they're tinkering on something at home that maybe doesn't have much of a, an online audience or they don't feel like a, they're a little nervous maybe to put it out there, but they still in their back of their, their mind, they they want to kind of share it <laughs> somewhere. I think ours is a space where, where people can share rough sketches, new ideas and inspire each other and show 
even somebody who's never tried to do music in any capacity to show them like there, there are so many options av- available to us today to just start making things. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that Pintology can be a space that inspires people just to, to get out there and try something. Mm. So we're, we have that music event. We have a, here in the fall, I'm planning on doing a like micro film festival where it's, you know, three minutes or less, or maybe even shorter. I haven't decided yet. Mm-hmm. Something really short to say here, you can go out and shoot a story on your phone. Here's kind of the theme. Um, no pressure. You don't need fancy equipment. You don't need fancy lights or microphones. Just uh, try to tell a story in less than three minutes and then have a little screening where everybody who made them can come together and watch each other's work and kind of inspire each other. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Um, it's fun to make things, even if, you know, I think today there's an ex- expectation of, well, how many followers do you have? Or, you know, how much money is it going to make you or yeah. yada, yada. And I, I think that's kind of missing the point of, of just expressing yourself without the expectation of, of all those things. And hopefully we can be a community where at, at least the handful of other people who are there for the performance or for the screening or whatever, uh, you know, see you putting yourself on the screen or through your own music, playing a weird little set or whatever. And then you might inspire them to, Hey, you know what? I'm going to make something too. And that's really the, the best thing that I can hope to accomplish <laughs> through this space. And we're on, we're on our way. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I think, um, like you said, um, one of the points there is like, it seems like, you know, kind of what you've been doing, you know, through your, through your career and through the past several years is, you know, the main thing is the passion, the community, and, you know, you don't have in your head this idea, okay, I need this many followers to make it happen, or I got to monetize it to make it happen. It's like, you know, you do it for the passion, you do it for the love of it. And if there's other like-minded people, you know, perhaps, perhaps, you know, that will come like monetization or perhaps it'll come down the line, but that can't be the focus of things like this. Or I think, you know, just from my experience in talking to people as well, if that's, if you're going in with this idea, oh, this is going to be popular, oh, this is going to make money, then it's kind of, it loses something along the way and Mm. you kind of lose connection um, with, you know, the group that you're kind of, you know, searching for or is there all along. Um, So, yeah, I really appreciate what you're doing with your space you know, the craft beer, of course, people are always going to, some people are always going to gravitate towards craft beer. You're going to have your craft beer geeks, but yeah. on top, on, yeah, on top of that, um, you're creating these mm. other little communities, you know, maybe, maybe you've got certain days when it works better than others. I'm sure you're experimenting with that. Um, like, at, at least from my experience doing some uh, work at a craft beer spot as well, um, 
do you have some like crossover? You know, you get the people who are really into the beer and then you got these events going on. Um, do they like interact uh, pretty well or would you have like certain days yeah. where it's like, well, I know it's going to be uh, pretty busy with, uh, you know, the craft beer folks. So maybe we'll do an, an event at another time, like maybe during the day or on another day. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very important part of kind of the calculus of running a bar. Uh, obviously, if it's already going to be a busy day of just beer people, then, you know, there's kind of no need, quote unquote, to have an event. And also, you don't want to step on your regular beer communities kind of habits. You don't want to get in their way of enjoying the beer. <laughs> so, yeah, our, a lot of our events tend to be on Thursday or uh like Wednesday or uh, days that aren't traditionally, you know, big bar days. That being said, it is kind of hard to predict it because our space isn't that big. You know, if we have in our kind of normal sit down setup, if we have 15 people, we're, we're pretty full. <laughs> um, and then for these events, we'll move to like a standing style where we just basically remove the cafe tables, bring out a couple of standing tables and, set up the bar so it's more standing mode, then we can accommodate upwards of 50 people. I mean, it'll be pretty packed, but um, we don't want to, yeah, it is part of the kind of calculation. Uh, generally, Friday will probably be busy enough to where we don't need to plan an event. Sometimes we'll do like, say, a DJ event on a Saturday where it's less sort of challenging and off-putting than our bad head is very like noise and ambient <laughs> focused right. and your standard you know just kind of run-of-the-mill salary man who likes beer probably isn't going to really connect with that type of a of an event so but you know if we have people spinning vinyl you know like soul and groove and whatnot that's not off-putting to anybody and kind of fits a saturday vibe in general it's not going to scare anybody away mm -hmm. So sometimes we have a a group of um, Japanese DJs who spin vinyl and we'll have them all come do sets on a Saturday, just basically all day. And it's, you know, that's a good event because they'll bring in their friends um, and people who just kind of follow them as DJs and then our regulars can come in and enjoy it as well. Uh, we do open mic comedy in English, which is another problem because not problem, but kind of challenge. Cause I'd say maybe half and half were English speakers and, and Japanese speakers. So it's, it is kind of risky to one or two nights a month, dedicate your space to really only half of your community. Um, but I, I like having a space where people can work on their open mic comedy skill. You know, that's part of the art community. It's like we have this space, so let's use it to to help these kind of creative people figure out their craft, even if maybe it doesn't make the most sense <laughs> business-wise sometimes. Mm -hmm. But you never know who might come in the door because of those events and who might become a regular. And mm -hmm. um, we've met, met so many great people through doing that um and but those tend to be on thursday nights 
really probably a Wednesday or a Monday <laughs> would make more sense for us. But mm. uh, Thursday is what works for the open mic community. So that's what we're rolling with. Right. Um, but it is part of the challenge of figuring out how to find events that build a community without stepping on the toes of your existing community um, or your regular customers. You don't want to scare them away or train them to stop coming because it's too out there and it's uncomfortable. So we're always yeah. kind of skirting that line. I think, you know, any more than one event a week and you're going to start making it hard for your just kind of standard craft beer drinkers to rely on you as being a place to go and just enjoy a beer. Yeah. So that's kind of the balance we've been finding. Right, right, right. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, like you mentioned, all these different sort of communities that you might not get if you didn't, you know, host these events, um, you know, kind of interacting with each other and then kind of, you know, bringing certain groups maybe become regulars or maybe semi-regulars mm. at your place. Um, but yeah, like you said, once a week, anything more than that, it yeah, it's it's tricky. Like in in terms of in terms of your current space, I know like you know, you're just a year in. Um in terms of like hosting events and looking towards your future a little bit, you mentioned it is a bit small. Um I'm not sure if you can have much food there. Uh I heard you talk in the past. Yeah. You can't really have a kitchen. Um do you see like the space working out for the future or would you could you foresee something like down the line where you could expand into a bigger space? Yeah, we talk about that a lot. I would like to, if possible, keep the original Pintology as always having kind of like a living room vibe, you know, where people can just meet up and hang out and kind of be the original flagship shop. And that's where our core community is. So just keep that there. And if possible, we at some point, I would really like to have a space that's a little bit bigger where you have a bar space that is always a bar no matter what's happening. And then you have like a performance slash event area where maybe some days if there's no event happening, then the whole space will be open to be used as a bar. And then on certain days, maybe we can do like screenings because we have a quote-unquote secret secret late night movie club where sometimes after hours just me and several other you know nerds get together and watch obscure cinema um so it'd be nice to have a, a proper screening space that could accommodate accommodate a few more people and um, operate at kind of more reasonable hours <laughs> um because usually we start those around 11 30 or midnight at night, which is tough on a weeknight for most people. Mm. Um, but that would be kind of the dream is a slightly bigger space, whether one floor is a bar and then there's another floor that's a, it could be a rehearsal performance, whatever multi-purpose uh, kind of venue type space that that's really my dream at this point. Mm -hmm. And then we can have more, you know, like book actual bands and have, um, film screenings, uh, you know, conference type things, whatever kind of multi-purpose, um, event space. That would be the dream. And we've also talked about, a 
maybe around Yogi Uehara. It's just expensive in that area, but I think that's a great station for a kind of a higher end, more bottle shop where we have a nice, of course, cans and bottles and maybe some like natural wine and stuff too, where really the focus is people getting off the train, picking up a few cans or bottles, and we'd probably have, you know, five or six taps as well, mm-hmm. building a community there just focused around kind of a higher end feel of craft beer and natural wine and building mm. a community like that. Right, so right, right. those are kind of our next goals, probably keeping the original space. Mm-hmm. Ideally, I think we'd like to, but if not, you know, maybe we could, if say we have issues with the landlord or whatever, we just get sick of, we have apartments right above us. So that always complicates things. We have to Mm -hmm. not, we can't be too noisy, especially not late into the night. So generally our events, we try to wrap up around like 10 or so. Mm -hmm. Um, But a a bigger space, if, if we can make it happen is definitely in the cards. It's one of the dreams (laughs) down the road. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds like, yeah, you always, you always got something going. You're always thinking, and you mentioned yeah. that uh, you mentioned that kind of short film fest uh, sounded like a really cool idea. Like in terms of uh, in terms of like your own kind of creative pursuits, um, doing some more potentially like doc work or video work, short films. Uh, what do you what do you kind of have? Uh, you know what's going on in your head. You know if you could get some. If you could get a chunk of time, um, you know, and maybe funding or, you know, whatever, um, what do you, what are you kind of thinking in terms of your own sort of work? Yeah, well, I do, I have a project I'm working on right now. Um, so that's going to be finding the time to finish that is, is the challenge at the moment, but it's, it's with my friend Robot Prince is his performing name. He's a chiptunes artist from Sweden. Um, and he's, he's been in Japan for, I think, close to 15 years now. I don't know if you've heard of YMCK. They're like kind of the godfathers of chiptunes music as we know it, essentially. Oh, nice. But he's okay. kind of part of that whole scene, friends with them. And we've been producing a s- series of uh, short YouTube videos, essentially, that are teaching music production from the perspective of a chiptunes artist and a music theory because he's genuinely just a very good songwriter. Like a lot of the chiptunes people, it's just about the novelty of it sounding like Famicom music, you know, but they might Mm -hmm. not actually, which I don't want to, I mean, I make, I do noise sets at my bar, so I don't want to like shit on people who (laughs) don't necessarily compose the most sort of traditional, traditionally structured, like music theory, cohesive pieces of music. But um, chip tunes, there's a wide range, a spectrum of of more like noise oriented or just kind of exploring these fun Famicom sounding songs. And Robot Prince, I would say, is on the strong music theory end of that spectrum where he's he's making really good songs and melodies, but he's just using the um, the uh, palette of the chip tunes sound. Mm. Um, and he's a really fun, uh, charming guy. So we're making a, probably a 10 part little mini series on music production with him. The vibe is kind of like Pee Wee's Playhouse meets the mighty Boosh, (laughs) but he's teaching you how to make music. 
so like you know he's in a an apartment but all the inanimate objects have like personalities um so he's like his keyboard has a personality and uh, there's this little it's a kitchen timer that we turned into a puppet that explains um half steps in music <laughs> where he's counting the half steps and everything that robot prince is doing to kind of explain that concept but uh we have several episodes written a couple of them shot it's just now we're at the point where there's a lot of kind of effects <laughs> to apply and there's we're very small there's only three of us working on it so we need to make essentially like a digital set which is his peewee's playhouse equivalent uh still working on that and kind of cleaning up a lot of the visual assets and finishing it up and, and shooting those last few episodes. So that's going to, if we can get that out this year, I feel like that's an optimistic goal of just finishing all of the post-production stuff and making the digital assets and then shooting the remaining episodes. Mm. So that's kind of my goal for this year on top of the uh, short film festival thing. And then after that, like my own project. Yeah. I definitely want to get making a fiction, fictional narrative film type thing. So I, I'm really interested in sci-fi. I think um, there's a, a Japanese movie beyond the infinite two minutes uh, that came out in, in the last few years. Like a, that's kind of a similar vibe that I would want to pursue um, where it's a little bit kind of quirky off kilter sci-fi with a bit of a sense of humor. Um, you know, maybe Edgar Wright would be another filmmaker that, you know, inspires me something like that, where it's just kind of fun. And I'm always drawn to sci-fi type concepts. So there'll, there'll probably be some aspect of that and definitely lean on being in Japan. So borrow some, some of those, just what's available to us here in Tokyo as a backdrop. Like I've, I've been kind of kicking around this idea about, you know, the little scooter delivery people who drive scooters, the little three wheeled scooters mm -hmm. with the little like box in the back where they store something. I've been kicking it around a kind of like sci-fi mystery story following one of those where they end up having to uh, deliver some questionable goods that ends up in the back of their scooter and they either have to like get rid of it or find a place to put it. Right. But you know, that's a pretty high level production because in, he's going to be driving he or she will be driving through the streets of Tokyo. So we're going to need to like rent a van and put a camera in the back of it and somehow f get one of those scooters and either do it guerrilla style or actually find some permits to shoot in certain areas. Right. But that's a much bigger undertaking that I'm just kind of slowly trying to work toward. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, that's all, that's all cool to hear, man. Like, um, Definitely, you got a lot on the go. You got a lot kind of, you know, rolling around in your head. And um, I think, you know, since you kind of were able to, um, you know, quit your full-time job and focus, you know, on the bar and doing your own thing, uh, I think that's also like a big step in terms of your yeah. cre creative career and, uh, you know, building these communities as well. Like, you know, like for someone who kind of, wants to get involved in like the arts communities and creative communities, you know, maybe they're new to Japan. Like what would, what would you say to someone just looking for a bit of 
advice to get involved? You just have to go out and, and find somebody. I think that's what, if, if I could do anything differently early on, like when I was in undergrad, everybody had such an ego back then about whose project it was and whose, like which idea is, is better. Everybody wanted to be like the next Wes Anderson or something. And I think that's the wrong way to go about it. The, how I would go about it. We had so much time and resources back then, man, I wish I could go back (laughs) and with knowing what I know now and go back to that time where I, my focus was to be making things. And I had so many resources at my fingertips, like these crazy big studios and they had like red cameras and, uh, and amazing facilities, Ball State University, David, David Letterman school of media shout out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but what I wish I would have done was just be involved on everybody's project that I had time to, you know, Mm. I didn't have to try to make my own little, only my own little projects, you know, I could join, even if I'm running sound on somebody's or, uh, like set design or being an extra or whatever, just be involved, especially early on, be involved with as much as you possibly can because your I, our ideas of what we think our, uh, strong suit is or what we're destined to become often are wrong. Um, and the only way to find that out is just to get out there and do things and you'll find in practice like, Oh, actually I'm not Wes Anderson. I'm really good at lighting and you know, you need that too. You need really good lighting is such an important part of visual storytelling and you know, key grips and (laughs) uh, people who do lighting, they're not as romanticized or as uh, sort of built up as celebrities as cinematographers or directors, but they're extremely important. And um, there's so many areas you can get involved, maybe making costumes, you know, I have an acquaintance who, who makes costumes for pretty big productions. And it's so fascinating to hear them talk about, you know, how they got into that. And a lot of the times your like big breakthrough will come through some little side project that you, you never even expected to take off. You were just doing it because it was fun. You know, sometimes follow the path of least resistance where Mm. you have this big built up idea of something you want to make in your mind, but there's something right in front of you that you can just kind of knock out. And that might be the one that, that, you know, gets attention from somebody or lands you a spot on a bigger project. So yeah, try as many things, especially early on, just try everything. And if you have the urge to make things, you know, just it can be hard when you're working full time or you have other obligations that energy runs out, just you have to push, (laughs) you know, and I'm, I say that as somebody who I say that to myself as well, like it's easy to just kind of give up and the longer you, especially the longer you're in a stable position and the more cushy it gets and the better your benefits become and the higher your salary gets, you eventually find yourself in your 30s, 40s, 50s with a lot of regrets. And I, I was kind of on that path, to be honest, mm. at my my day job. And I feel like I would just 
I would go insane if I didn't at least try to pursue some of these other things. Mm. So as hard as it is, and not everybody has the option of, you know, starting their own thing like we did. Um, but you just got to try to keep making things. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. Yeah. The world doesn't make it easy for you to both make a living and survive and have creative output, but you just got to yeah. keep cranking. <laughs> nice. Yeah, definitely. Definitely some great points in there, man. Um, I, one of the things I kind of took away is like, you know, follow your passions, you know, get involved with other people. Again, it's coming back to these communities, just kind of help, help other people, you know, they'll help you down the line, build these relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, don't do, don't do these gigs for money. Just do it, you know, to get involved, meet people, the passion of it. And, you know, they, one thing could lead to something else. Um, like you said, it's, it's not maybe like people have this idea. It's about me. It's about the ego when you start out, but yeah, yeah like you mentioned, like you mentioned, that's really not what it's about. It's about these communities yeah. and everyone helping each other. So yeah, I think there's a lot of, a lot of great points in there. And also kind of like you said, you just got to try something, you know, you, you might fail or that that might be, not be like the right aspect of what you want to do. Um, but if it's always something that you think, okay, I'll have time to do it later. Or, you know, maybe, you know, I can do this once I finish this other thing, blah, blah, blah. You know, you'll kind of end up in your 30s, 40s, 50s and always think, uh, what if I what if I did this or what if I did that? Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and if you do it and fail, then at least you know you did it. And yeah, if you're if you're doing if you're making something so that like you like what you made, you know there's something in it that is special, like unique to you. It shows your point of view. Then even if it doesn't connect with anyone else, just enjoy that. Of you put it out there, you know. And most people who make things like the people who are really critical and negative on creative work very rarely are people who actually do creative work like the the really hostile sort of spectators they're honestly they a part of it is they they just they want to make something too and they're scared and so they're lashing out at you most people who regularly make things in my experience like i've been lucky at the bar to meet some really incredible people who have worked with like George Lucas and shit and they're all the nicest, most supportive. Like they see your work and they know what it takes to make something. And like everything that sees it through to being completed and gets put out there is kind of a miracle. So just don't be, it's a tough balancing act because you do need to have some self-criticism to say like, I need to improve in these ways just to like make your output as good as it can be. If you put out everything that's like halfway done and you think, Oh, I'm a genius. This is the best thing ever. Why is nobody noticing me? That again, I think is kind of the ego part getting in the way, Mm. but so you need to find the balance where, yeah, you realize, okay, I can improve, but I'm going to put this out and I'm going to iterate and improve on the next one. So you're always kind of growing and working toward whatever your ideal output is as a creative person. And the best way to do that is just output, you know, to make things and to put it out there, which is easier said than done as somebody who's sitting on probably right now, like 10 (laughs) unfinished (laughs) projects. (laughs) 
but that's just kind of the way it goes sometimes. And maybe over the next several years, all 10 of those will be completed projects and I'll have 10 new incomplete projects (laughs) that I'm sitting on. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. I think, yeah, like you said, um, it's a process and like any skill art, you know, it may come more natural to some people, but you know, it's something you got to work at. And it's something that the more you do, the better you're going to get, the more experience you have. So yeah, I think that's a great point as well. It's something that you, you definitely have to practice. You definitely have to keep doing and you will improve, you know, if you can, if you can face some of the criticism and learn from that, um, yeah, then it's like, it's an ongoing process, right? People giving you good criticism are a gift. That's another thing. Like, um, Mm. let go of the ego. You don't have to listen to everything, but somebody who cares enough to watch your thing and give you input, even if it's negative, uh, that's something to really cherish. And I think to be grateful for, and that's another thing I think I wish I would have learned early on, you know, listen to those voices, even if you disagree with their feedback, you can say, okay, well, it's coming across this way to them. How can I clean it up or how can I approach it in a way where if that's not how I want people to receive it, how can I kind of make my uh, vision come across how I want it to, you know, Mm. um, and feedback is invaluable for things like that. If you can't take feedback and if you shut down every time everybody gives you constructive criticism, I think that's kind of something that will, that can stop you in your tracks (laughs) from progressing. Mm. That's one of the few things where it's like, if you can't learn how to overcome that, you might kind of be SOL, (laughs) I think. Yeah. 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 That's a great point too. Um, yeah, man, I gotta, I gotta thank you for jumping on and having this chat today. Just got a couple final questions that I ask every guest at the end of the pod. If that's cool yeah. with you, cool, cool. So, of course, yeah. As this, as this is called uh, the Inspirations Pod, they kind of relate to that. And you touched on this one a little bit earlier. So the first question is, uh, this can be like a person, it can be a thing. Um, like, what's something or someone? You don't have to limit it to one, but what's something or someone that's really inspired you in your work or in your life? Hmm. A first person who jumped in my head is Rob Schraub, uh, the co-creator of the Sarah Silverman program. He's now a writer on Rick and Morty. He made Scud the Disposable Assassin. Um, he used to be involved with Channel 101 stuff early on. Channel 101 in general, like a lot of those characters have become problematic, (laughs) problematic figures like Justin Roiland, uh, Dan Harmon. They're really problematic (laughs) in in their own various ways. But the early Channel 101 kind of culture of let's just make something and it can be weird and goofy and not make any sense or like House of Cosby's or Computer Man or Laser Fart, like all these (laughs) ridiculous early kind of semi sketch sort of web series um that whole ethos is is totally like i feel like i spiritually would like to be to carry on the same mantle and hopefully less be less kind of creepy about it (laughs) and and, you know (laughs) justin roiland and them they're going through their own issues but rob Schraub, i feel like out of that community has he's always been such a positive voice in that community um 
he's just so creative and he'll make, even if he's alone in a room with scraps of paper, he will make something that's just funny and off the wall and engaging and creative. And I feel like there's just, you, there's no stopping (laughs) that guy from doing that. He may not be the biggest name in the world, you know, maybe not everybody knows who he is, but the work he's done with like semi stop motion to just like paper cutouts that he moves in real time on the camera. Like he can work with almost any budget. Um, I like him a lot. And early on when he was making Scud, the disposable assassin, you know, he was in his, it was kind of a bit of a late start in terms of the creative world. I feel like he was in his late twenties and just decided I just need to sit down and make this thing. And he did, and he cranked out those graphic novels and they're really good. And it's just the output of one person, mostly. I I think people helped him write them eventually, but it's just one guy like, I need to make something and I'm going to go crazy if I don't. So I'm just going to sit down and crank it out. Yeah. Um, So I really like his ethos and the way he approaches things. And we have very similar kind of tastes and interests, I think. So I guess I'll say Rob Schraub there. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice, nice one. Yeah. Go ch- go check him out. Yeah, I gotta I gotta dig into him a little bit more. Yeah, I only pretty much know the name, but uh, I don't know too much of his work. So that'll be a something for me to check out later today too. Um, so uh, on the flip side, you know, someone sees what you're doing, what you're doing with the bar, um, what you've done in the past with your pod or with your uh, doc work, your YouTube channel. Um, what does it mean for you then to uh, be an inspiration to other people? Um, if, if I can just either make a space or if something I do just encourages somebody to, to put themselves out there and make something, you know, that's the best I could possibly hope for. After one of my weird little sets at the, the bad head events where I was just taking tapes and running them through a mixer and kind of doing no input mixing with it where you just kind of like play with the feedback uh i just did that for 30 minutes and you know somebody said i never thought about you know using a just a mixer as an effector and she said it kind of you know opened her mind to what's possible of what to get out there and make something You, you can start small with what you have and you know, that's the best thing I could possibly hope to hear is mm. maybe what I was doing live for the set was kind of weird and didn't go anywhere. But if it gives somebody else an idea that they can run with and encourages them to start making something that they weren't making before, then that's that's the best I could possibly hope to achieve. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a cool idea. Um yeah, I got to thank you one more time for jumping on. So like if people want to keep up, you know, you got a lot of projects always on the go. Uh, you got the bar. Uh, where's the best place for people to keep up with uh, Pintology with yourself? Uh, you got some social media channels. I know the Instagram is the biggest one for the bar. Yeah. Then. yeah. In general, yeah. Just there's too much social media. I've decided to mostly focus on Instagram Pintology Tokyo is the Pintology account. Mm-hmm. Definitely give us a follow there. Like all of our events we post there are 
we're posting, you know, little stories constantly. So if you want to stay on top of what we have going on, that's definitely the place. And then my Instagram, which is not so active, is Kairu B, K-A-I-R-U-B-I-I. Um, and also I'll occasionally post little tidbits there, but as other projects develop, that's probably going to be a place if you want to see my projects that aren't related to the bar. Cool. Cool. All right, Kyle. Yeah. I know you're, know you're a busy man. Um, you got, uh, some, some great craft brews calling your name. Uh, yeah, well, not quite yet. Right now but... it might be Diablo four for a little bit. That's been my, uh, <laughs> time sink of choice lately right on yeah gotta, uh, gotta warm up thank you james for your time and reaching out uh and doing a bit of research on all my dumb little projects like <laughs> that's very flattering and and cool to see <laughs> that somebody out there noticed something that i did <laughs> everyone thanks for listening thanks for staying to the end If you're listening to this, of course, a big thanks to Kyle once again for taking the time to come on and have a chat. Don't forget to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Everything is at ADSRPod. We'd love to hear from you and keep the inspiration flowing. We got another interesting one next week with a real real pro. It's a camera operator, cinematographer, Tokyo-based, Paris-trained, Swedish-born, Mikhail Senninge. That's all from me, your host James. Until next time, stay inspired.